The Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. The only Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there are four last things and five days for parish mission. <laughs> We've had the four last things. Father Rutledge wisely asked me to speak today about the mercy of God. Mercy. We've, we've had some sobering considerations and um, serious things to think about. And certainly this meditation on the mercy of God, the love of God, is very necessary for us that we don't get discouraged. Certainly the word of God against any sort of despair that could have come from, from these very serious considerations of death, judgment. Hell, particularly. And so that that quote from St. Luke's, Luke's Gospel, the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. I think it's my favorite line in the whole of Sacred Scripture. It's so clear, so perfect, it's so short, but you can hold on to it. It comes at the conversion of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is there, um, the little short man up in the tree who's too short to see our Lord Jesus Christ, and everybody's around and he comes, he's craning his neck and he can't see him. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to climb a tree. So he's up there. He has problems, this man. He's, he's dishonest, he's defrauding people. Is basically a public sin. Everybody knows it. What does our Lord say? Hey, you up there, give all your money back out to the poor and stop cheating people and then maybe I'll love you and, and maybe we'll do dinner one day. <laughs> Zacchaeus, hurry to come down. I'm coming to lunch now. <laughs> it's great mercy from Almighty God to love this poor sinner up a tree as he is. And then after he's after Zacchaeus has been converted, today salvation has come to this house. This man too is a child of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. This tells us clearly who our God is. Who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we should really cling to it. And ask Our Lady Mother of Mercy to imprint those words on our souls forever. If we hold on tight to that, that could one day save, save us from despair. That could save our soul. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. So Father asked me to talk about mercy. But to speak of mercy is, is really to speak of charity, to speak of the love of God. It's one reality. Any, anybody who's done the Ignatian retreats will know. The last conference, the infinite merciful love of God. The infinite loving mercy of God. 
Mercy is just the summit of charity. Archbishop Lefebvre explains, God is charity. It's his very essence. And his charity contains everything he needs to be merciful. The word mercy, the Latin word, misericordia, comes from two things. Miser, misery, and cor, the heart. So the merciful one is the one whose heart goes out to misery in order to seek to relieve it. It flows directly from charity, in fact. Because charity, okay, love. Firstly, obviously, there's the question of love as a in the feelings. But more fundamentally, if you love somebody, you do good to them. You want to do good to the beloved. You will their good. So nice warm fuzzy feelings don't mean a whole lot if you're not trying to do good to somebody. You know, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> you know. um, no. Love is willing the good for the other. And the only difference between that and mercy is mercy is willing and doing good for another, but particularly to misery. Where there is misery, where there is some, some wretchedness, some poverty, to want to alleviate that. So to love something, first of all, to will is good. God is, Archbishop Refer tells us in Secret Scripture, God is charity. He wills good to everything that he has made. This is the book of wisdom. Thou lovest all things that are, thou hatest none of the things that thou hast made. For that is this not a point or make anything hating it. And how can anything endure if thou wouldst not? Or be preserved if not called by thee? But thou sparest all because they are thine, O Lord, who lovest souls. You love all things that are and you don't hate any of the things that you've made. Because if you hated them, you wouldn't have made them. And it's really strictly, philosophically true. If God did not love me, I would not exist. He holds me. I don't have being of myself. This is a bit abstract, I'm sorry. But we come back to these basic truths. If I exist, it is because God is holding me in existence. And how does he do that? By his will, by his love. If he stopped thinking of me for a second, if he stopped loving me for a second, nothing. So it's absolutely certain. Do I exist? Last time I checked. So God loves me. It's, it's that certain. Remember, the 
by his aphorism of Father Arabantius. Father Arabantius would ask him, but he had this in, in, in preaching often. You know, somebody, oh, I bumped into so-and-so at the store, and actually he told me about a situation, and it turns out that it was exactly, that I had exactly what I needed to help him, or he had exactly what it, so it was, it was quite providential, actually, the way things turned out. Father Arabantius' summary, of course it's providential, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Profound theological truth <laughs> And it's, it's, it's true. It's strictly, literally true. And it should be, it's the same sort of truth. Of course God loves me. I exist, don't I? It should be as obvious for us. It's not. We'll talk about the reasons why we know the reasons why. So that's the first thing. It's certain that God loves us. But very often, we're like St. Peter, right? We, we're trying to walk on the water, and we end up letting our eyes slip. We end up looking at ourself. And if we're looking at self, we're going to start sinking. And this whole idea of the love of God is going to be hard to hold on to. Why? Because when I look at myself, in my more sober moments. What's there to love, really? I know what I am. I'm not all that lovable, small-hearted, not that generous, selfish. I've done terrible things. I'm proud, I'm weak, I'm blind. Probably don't even believe myself of the things I'm claiming to accuse myself of. How can God love me? Why does God love me? What is there to love? It makes no sense. It makes no sense if you look at self. I may swagger from time to time. I may spend hours preening in the mirror. I may look down on other people for being so stupid or whatever, so superficial. I may boast, but really I know I'm not all that in a bag of cheese. I know. It's, there's, there's not that much to love there. And so it's difficult. You're telling me that God loves me, and I'm thinking, aha, God loves me, code word, everybody else. Maybe this doesn't apply to all of us, but possibly a sufficient number to talk about. And we get it very wrong. It's hard for us to process this love of God. It's harder for us to relate to this as a reality. Why? Because we judge everything by human standards. And when we get to this question of love, it is dangerous because the love of God is absolutely different to human love it has different logic so human love we love 
what is good in another. We love what is lovable. Some good in them draws us. There has to be a good there. And that's what you incline towards. Every love song ever written. Every hallmark Valentine's Day card ever written. I love you because dot 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 completed a thousand ways. I love you because of your beauty a good in the person. Your kindness because you may be the best possible me that it's possible for me to be. <laughs> because I love the way you protect and defend me. I love the way that we understand each other. But there's always some good in the other. I love you because you really have nothing going for you, but I'm a good guy. You get that in your Valentine's card, you're not going to be too happy. It's human love. And then when, when, you know, when you see a, a friend and they're dating somebody, this, this, this is a deadbeat, you're like, what does she see in him? <laughs> what does he see in her? Um, that's the truth. What do they see? What good do they see that they're moving towards in love? That's human love. And we want to apply the same logic to God. Human love always moves towards the good in the, in the other. And when we see no good in self, we say, I can't see how God loves me. And we get it very wrong. Because God's love is fundamentally different from human love. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are exalted above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. To be a human being is to be incomplete. I am not the perfection of the universe, staggering as it may seem. philosophical terms, I am not pure act. I'm a mixture of act and potency. There's something to be fulfilled in me. And that's why we incline towards the good of another. We're not perfectly sufficient unto ourselves. So we, we, we look to another's, another good, an external good, to fill up our good. And it doesn't need to be selfish, it's just human. So even in the best case scenario, friendship, the highest, highest love in friendship, you, we unite ourselves to the, to the beloved as a second self and seek the good of the other who seeks our good. There's a sharing in all, all things of, of goods, a communion of goods. Still, there's something in us which is incomplete and seeks to fulfill itself, even legitimately, in the goods of another. And God is not like that. We say in the Psalms, I said, You are my God. Bonorum 
Maorum non agents. You have no need of my goods. God is in, in some state of incompletion that he's looking to, to my goods to fulfill them. God is perfectly complete and happy from all eternity. The plenitude of being, goodness, happiness. From all eternity, the blessed Trinity, this perfect life, perfect knowledge of the absolute truth, perfect love of the absolute good, perfect happiness. The Father loves the Son and gives himself to the Son. The Son loves the Father and returns himself in love to the Father. The mutual love between them is the substantial love which is the Holy Ghost. This perfect bond and perfect happiness, lacking nothing, no perfection is lacking in, 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 in God, in our God. So he doesn't need my goods. It's not because God sees something good, beautiful, noble in me that he's like, oh, I love that one. And not so much that one. No, it's not that way. He loves me first. Then he pours goodness out there. I, I may say, well, uh, this doesn't seem to be much goodness there. His goodness is the cause of things. His, his goodness, his love, is the cause of goodness in things. So because he loves me first of all, when I've done nothing and don't even exist, by the way, he gives me life, being, any qualities that I have, any good that's in me, naturally, my talents, the circumstances around me which have favoured my survival, my flourishing, the grace of baptism, the grace to receive the true faith and to preserve the true faith in this poor world, which is very lost. The grace is to rise from sin so many times. The grace to be here today in this mission. All of these graces, not because God sees some good in me, and therefore He loves me, but because God loves me, and therefore He pours out His goodness on me. It's the other way around. So why does He pour out His goodness on, on me? That's what goodness does, St. Thomas is going to tell us. Good is diffusive of itself. That's what the scholastic philosophers, theologians say. God, God is good, and good tends to spread itself. You know, whenever you hear, I just found this great song, you have to listen to it, and I'm going to tell everybody. Because the goodness in it wants to spread. I met this really interesting person you should talk to. Fine. Because if you see a good, then you want to diffuse it. And it's, that's why it is for God. He is good, and so he pours out 
his goodness. Little created copies of his goodness. Participations. So what am I? An empty space. Absolutely poor. Having nothing. And that's what God loves in me. My nothingness. Even my littleness, my wretchedness. Why? Because it's an empty space for him to pour out his goodness into. It allows him to show that he is God. He loves our wretchedness. He loves our misery. Why? Because he's good. And that's a brick wall. Why is he good? Because he's good. <laughs> we, we can't get any further, you know. It, it should stagger us a little bit. There is a being, a real being, who holds everything that is in existence, who is more real than anything I can see or touch, who is ultimately the only thing that matters. And that being is good. Why? Because. It's the brute fact of all reality. The goodness of God. And that's where we have to stop. Our reasoning must stop there. If you want to ask why, you get to that wall and you can only bang your head against it. The, the metaphysician, the philosopher can come and say, well, being and goodness are convertible and God is ultimate being, so God is ultimate goodness. Gets us no further. It's just a different angle of the same brick wall. <laughs> so when we get to that brick wall, God is good. Either we make an act of faith, an act of adoration, or we just keep banging our head against it in frustration. We can't understand. And that's our vote for the fundamental optimism of the universe, the goodness of God. So my badness, my weakness, my nothingness does not need to block the love of God. Why? Because in, he didn't love me in the first place for some good that he saw in me. He loves me because he is good. And it's very beautiful and something that the French have that we don't have and it's so natural for them. Le bon Dieu, the good God. Every time, every time they speak of Almighty God, the good God. It's part of the fabric of the, the view of the world expressed in their language. It would do us many favours if we had this. It would be artificial to try and incorporate it, I think, <laughs> at least in any sort of mass scale. But it's so beautiful. The Irish the same thing. If the good for it had wanted. Okay. <laughs> the good God. It's very profound. And our world makes it very difficult for us to grasp the goodness of God. 
we live in a, a confusing, chaotic world and we trust, we live really at the level of feelings most of the time. We're talking about these principles of our faith that are stable, that are anchors. And the world is encouraging us to live at this level of feelings. I'm not very good at telling stories. I think the thing that makes the sermons more interesting is stories, and I never have any. So this is the best I have for a story. We, when I was growing up, adopted a little cat. It was a rescue cat. There was chaos in the house that it had come from, the humans that owned it. Um, They were going through a divorce. They had really no time or concern for this little cat. They had bigger fish to fry. Um, So the cat was more or less locked out and maybe fed sometimes or not, treated roughly and the cat was skittish. It's the best way to put it. Edgy, nervous, and erratic. So it didn't matter how many times you showed it tokens of affection, tried to soothe it, gave it good things, how consistent you were in being kind and gentle with this little cat. You reached for your drink and it would at a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say, it's kind of how we treat God a lot of the time. As long as everything's settled, it's fine, but if something changes out of the ordinary, then we freak out, we run away from God, and our fundamental attitude is that mistrust. He's punishing me, what have I done? Maybe he doesn't love me anyway. And I'm in a hole, going down. We're skittish, because we trust our feelings too much. We're more impressed with the mess inside than with the good God outside. And God can sometimes seem very abstract, very distant. So we fall back on our feelings, amusements, distractions. And furthermore, the the sight of our our weaknesses, our littleness, our poverty, our sin, just leads us to withdraw into self and to become discouraged. We treat these things as if they were obstacles, insurmountable obstacles to God's love. commendeth his charity towards us because when we were as yet sinners according to the time Christ died for us when we were as yet sinners Christ died for us that's the reality of mercy love pours itself out onto misery that is our God by his very nature, that is our God. One whose heart goes out to misery. If you ever go to Sunday Compline, there's this beautiful psalm. 
mercies, judgment for all that suffer wrong. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy. He will not be angry forever. He will not threaten forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. According as the height of the heaven above the earth, He has strengthened His mercy towards those that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He put our iniquities from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so has the Lord compassion on those that fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. The mercy of the Lord is from eternity to eternity upon those that fear him. And how do we see the mercy of God? Well, there's two things in mercy. To be affected by sorrow at seeing another's misery. But more importantly, to dispel another's misery. To relieve another's suffering. In other words, all mercy is, is love when it dispels evils or miseries of another. And the most important thing, obviously, is that action. It's not the feeling. Feelings are on their own. That is good. They're good and in order when they serve the act. <coughs> but apart from that, they're fairly worthless. <coughs> Remember the uh, Alice in Wonderland. The, the walrus is eating the oysters. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize with tears and sobs. He sorted out those of the largest size holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Feelings without action pointless. Mercy is proved in deeds. How do we see the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ? What has he done for me? What has our Lord Jesus Christ done for my soul? For me? All the natural goods he has given me in the order of grace, my being, my life, my baptism to be born into a Christian family, if I have had that, that grace, please God. The grace of baptism, the grace of conversion. Before that, the incarnation. For us men, for our salvation, he came down from heaven. So many struggles in his active ministry, so many miracles. Why? To relieve suffering, to relieve misery. His great patience, his kindness in treating the wretched, the sick, sinners, the possessed. His agony, his passion. And what's the fundamental disposition of the Sacred Heart? To save souls. The desire to save souls. This is Archbishop of Heaven. Even when he is saving bodies, when he's giving sight to the blind or giving healing to the paralytic, he has no other goal but to save souls. In saving bodies, he is saving souls because he has faith of those he wishes to heal. Therefore, he saves them by the faith which they have in him. And by this very fact, he gives them sanctifying grace. 
Kindness to sinners is not an exceptional fact in the life of Christ. It is a constant and considered attitude. The Son of Man is come to seek and save what was lost. Since God is charity, all he does can only be charity. And mercy is the summit of charity. A person can give no better expression of charity than by being merciful. The summit of charity towards our neighbor is to forgive him the wrong he has done to us. To love him in spite of his miseries, in spite of his sins. Of course, our Lord always lays down the condition of repentance. When he takes away sin, when he restores life to a soul, it's because that soul opened itself by repentance to receiving that forgiveness. But he is constantly forgiving. Our Lord says, they that are in health need not the physician, but the sick. Go and learn what it means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not come to call the just, but sins. So he always ends up with these souls. Go and sin no more. But before that, he's lifted their eyes. He's listened to them. He's spoken to them of the goodness of the Father. He's opened his arms so that weeping they may be received into his, into his arms. And everywhere we see them pressing around him, publicans and sinners draw near to him. And the Pharisees are scandalized. Archbishop of let us this time bless their narrowness. For it provoked from the Master such a reply that no page of the Gospel except the account of the Passion has ever surpassed or even equaled in its marvelous influence on poor human souls. And the crowd in wonderment, the Pharisees in confusion, the sinners radiant with hope, apostles glowing with pride in their Master, heard these three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. The 15th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. These are the three parables, the great parables of mercy. And it's good for us to go back to them. To understand better the goodness of God, the mercy of God towards us. We have to place ourselves in the atmosphere of God's mercy. The climate of Jesus, the Saviour. One mystery for us is the reconciliation of God's mercy and his justice. Sometimes people say the God was just in the Old Testament and he's merciful in the New Testament. And it's absolutely a falsification. In the Old Testament, he sends Jonah save these people who don't know their right hand from their left. And my heart bleeds for them more than this he could have said. Am I not to care for them? Go and preach so that they can be saved. In the New Testament, Annas and Sapphira, why have you defrauded the Holy Ghost, struck dead on the spot? Justice of God in the New Testament, the mercy of God in the Old Testament. It's the same all the way through. That's our God. And the mysterious thing is 
In God, his justice and his mercy are really identified. There's no real difference, distinction in God between his justice and mercy because all is God. So what is the key text for the the church that we would think of the justice of God? The DSE written, right? Day of wrath and doom impending. And so many beautiful examples that the church gives us in that sequence for the mass of the dead of the mercy of God. Qui Mariam absolvisti et latronum exaudisti miki quoque spendidisti. Who absolved Mary Magdalene, who heard the dying thief, has also given me hope. First of all, then, the example of our Lord treating Mary Magdalene. This shows us the sacred heart. She was a sinner in the city, a public sinner. She didn't have any excuse, quote-unquote, for a dissolute, shameful life. No excuse of poverty. Her family was well-to-do. They had two houses. They had one in Bethany. They had a place at Magdala from which she takes her name. So she wasn't driven into this shameful life by, by poverty. It seems that she moved to Magdala to have a greater freedom from social constraints. Her waywardness, her wickedness is without extenuating circumstances. But God uses everything. In Magdala, she's right next to Cafano, where our Lord is preaching. She can see him. If from far off, she can see him. And she notices he is not like the others. So kind, so gentle, so pure. In his presence she feels wrong. She feels impure. His grace is drawing her. Perhaps once in the crowd their eyes meet. We can imagine that look of our Lord Jesus Christ. No reproach, but an abyss of mercy, of love, and call to conversion. Come away. Come away from your sins. Come to me. She must have started to weep. There's a process which is going to lead her to be one of the greatest saints in in the way. This natural shame that she feels at seeing the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be supernaturalized. Much has been forgiven her if she has loved much. What are we talking about? She has been forgiven her sins because of an act of love. It cannot be a merely natural act of love. There's no supernatural forgiveness of sin, justification, just from having a big heart on the natural level. She's been forgiven much because she has loved much by a love of charity, a supernatural love, which means that she has some light of faith to make that act of charity. She has come to know and to recognize the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
By the time she weeps at his feet for the first time, she has recognized that by the grace of God. And so she realizes this man who I've seen from afar, I have offended him personally, and he is my God. And it cuts her to the heart. And her sins have been very public. Everybody knows. She's notorious. So she wants to make reparation publicly. She comes down into this house of Simon the Pharisee. She casts herself at his feet. Perhaps she prepared a little speech like the prodigal son. Lord, I've been this, I've been that, but now she can't get anything out. She just <coughs> kneels there and weeps and weeps and kisses his feet and pours out her own and weeps. And our Lord understands. The Pharisee is scandalized. If he knew anything, he would know this is a sinner. Our Lord, this is no longer a sinner. She's been forgiven much. She's loved much. And the compassion of Our Lady, this account of St. Mary Magdalene is, is only in St. Luke's Gospel. St. Luke's Gospel, we call it the Gospel of the Blessed Virgin Mary, contains all of those details that only Our Lady could have known. So St. Luke was talking to Our Lady for certain. This event shows that Our Lady takes this, this interest in four sins. And it was almost certainly for me, it was by Our Lady's prayers that St. Mary Magdalene received such a profound and lasting conversion. Qui Mariam absolvisti miki quoque spendidisti, who has forgiven Mary Magdalene, you have also given you. Then the good thief on the cross, et latronum exaudisti. He was blaspheming God about an hour before he died. I mean, not more than two and a half hours before he died. And he became the first saint in the New Testament. And he made an act of faith in the divinity of a man he saw weak, dying a shameful death, mocked, disfigured, and ugly, and covered in blood right next to him. This is the work of mercy. This is a triumph of God's mercy. The eleventh hour worker is called from blaspheming his God to an, to an act of faith. This man has done no wrong. You can say you can't say that of any mere human being. We deserve it. He has done nothing wrong. The impeccability of our Lord from his divinity. How does the Diazuri continue? Recordare Jesu pie quod sum causa tue die, ne me perdas ila die. Remember, good Jesus, I am the cause of your way. Do not destroy me from that day. I am the cause of his way from heaven to earth, of the, the ways that he walked in Palestine seeking sins, the way of the cross, which he will walk for me in a few days. Querens me sedisti lassus, redemisti crucem passus, 
Tantuslava Nonsit Kalsus. Seeking me, you sat down, exhausted. You redeemed me suffering the cross. Let such great labor not be in vain. <coughs> you sat down tired. That's the, the Samaritan woman at the well. He goes out seeking her. And who's he seeking? <coughs> seeking me. Every step of the journey over Palestine to preach the gospel, seeking my soul. Having suffered the cross, the ultimate proof of God's mercy, opening the sacred heart that we might all find entrance and to hide ourselves in that heart of mercy. Tantus labor non sit casus. Let this such great labor not be in vain. Because it's unfortunately still possible that this mercy not be accepted, not be received. Archbishop Lefebvre talks about the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of mercy. If you are aware of having committed a grave sin in your past life, which you refuse to confess for one reason or another, confess it now and have peace of soul. We must not keep a sin on our conscience out of fear, out of self-love, or out of shame. We're all sinners before God. The priest says it at the offertory when he offers the host on the pattern, Receive, Holy Father, Almighty God, this immaculate host which I offer you for my countless sins offenses and negligences. We're all sinners. So let us not be afraid to open up before God and confess very simply what happened to us. The priest is not the one we address in confession. We're speaking to our Lord himself. It is to him that we're confessing. The priest is only an instrument. And in the gospel, God shows his mercy, his goodness, his compassion, his love for the sinner. God knows how many different ways he showed it, how many examples in the scriptures, in the gospel, where we see the mercy of God. Our Lord was always merciful. And our Lord who is in Palestine and who had pity on sinners is the same one who is there in the confessional today when you make your confession. He's just as merciful, just as kind. The vilest souls weighed down with the most shameful sins can still be saved. So the important thing is to make a good confession so that by absolution our Lord washes our souls in his blood. Had our Lord not accepted to shed his blood, there would have been no way to make up for our sins. But since our Lord shed his blood with the desire to redeem all men, the priest can give absolution and so wash souls from their sins and purify consciences. That great fact, God is good, God is merciful. He loves me not because of any good in me, but because he is good. The Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. You have to ask Our Lady the Grace really to hold on to these truths. And when we see our weaknesses, our wickedness, our sins, turn to, turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to Our Lady. Hold your hand over Philip. For today he will betray you, St. Philip Neri said. We just turn to him. I'm always going to be like this unless you help me. You realize that. If we 
make our weaknesses an occasion of running into the arms of God, then they will only serve us and our salvation and our sanctification. One last story of St. Philip Neri. In the monastery of Santa Marta, a nun called Sister Scholastica Gadzi went to speak to St. Philip at the gate. And she wanted to share, share a secret that she never told anybody else. It was conviction I'm going to be lost. This is a generous religious. I'm not going to make it. As soon as St. Philip saw her, he said, What are you doing, Scholastica? What are you doing? Paradise is yours. Nay, Father, replied the nun, I fear the contrary will be the case, for it seems to me that I am lost. No, answered the saint. I tell you, paradise is yours, and I will prove it to you. Tell me, for whom did Christ die? For sinners, answered the nun. Well, said Philip, and what are you? A sinner. Then, added the saint, paradise is yours because you can repent of your sins. This conclusion restored peace to the sister's soul, and the temptation left her and never troubled her again. She always heard those words of St. Philip near paradise is yours in her ears. The Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. He has no need of my goods. All that remains is to give him with confidence and hope the one gift that I can give him, my own misery. He will never refuse his mercy if I'm able to receive it. Mother of mercy, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Ghost. So I'll give the blessing of the crucifix for the conclusion of the parish mission before benediction and then there'll be restation of the rosary and benediction.